0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Oh My Allergies podcast. This is your hostess with the mostest, Valencia. And if you are new here, the Oh My Allergies podcast is a podcast about all things allergies. Whether you have food allergies, seasonal allergies, skin allergies, or even your pet has allergies, Oh My Allergies is a safe space for discussions for those that need a bit of advice and support from someone who understands their struggle. Let's learn how to navigate life and learn how to thrive with our allergies together. Hey guys, welcome to or welcome back to the Oh My Allergies podcast. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I hope you all are enjoying your day today or whatever day you are listening to this podcast on. Um, If you are not subscribed to the Oh My Allergies podcast, what are you doing with your life? Make sure that you hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram is Oh My Allergies. Also follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Oh My Valencia. Also take the time to write a review and to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and platforms like that. Hopefully your rating is five stars and keep on sharing the pod with people you know and don't know. So today's episode is an exciting one because we have a guest on the pod. So today you guys are gonna hear my chat with Dr. Inderpal Renhawa who is the CEO of the Southern California Food Allergy Institute, also known as the SoCal Food Allergy Institute. And they are known for their allergy treatment program called the Tolerance Induction Program. If you are a person who follows the allergy community on social media, then you might be familiar with hearing SoCal Food Allergy Institute and a lot of people mentioning the Tolerance Induction Program in particular. Now, previously we had Serene Peary from Serene Safe on the pod and she briefly discussed her experience with the Tolerance Induction Program and that's actually when I first found out about the program. So when the SoCal Food Allergy Institute reached out, I was really excited to just learn more about the program from the source themselves and to hear, you know, more about the journey of the CEO and founder himself, which is Dr. Inderpal Renhawa. So before we get into today's episode, you guys know I got to talk about what's been going on. Lately I've been dealing with tension headaches for like the past few days and before you all say, "Oh my gosh, like what's going on?" I actually like know the culprit of my headaches and it's coming from the amount of sleep that I've been getting lately or really like the lack of sleep that I've been getting lately. So like going into this new week, I'm really trying to be better at prioritizing my sleep a lot more. I feel like my sleep hasn't been the greatest because of me not doing like my night routine which consists of me doing my sleep meditation and guys like when I say that I really can tell like a huge difference from like when I do do it and then when I don't do it it's really crazy guys I highly recommend trying sleep meditation it really helps me so much with being able to like relax myself usually another thing that's a part of my night routine is actually drinking a cup of tea right before I go to sleep like something along the lines of like a sleepy time or some type of chamomile tea like that really helps with being able to relax me so doing that and then actually doing the meditation has really helped so much. And I love listening to the sleep meditations on the Peloton app by this one instructor. Her name is Aditi, and her voice is just so relaxing, and it's honestly like what I need right before I go to bed. So I am really just trying to be a stickler about making sure I get my sleep meditations in so that I can get a good night's rest because it's really just been affecting me in a lot of ways that I'm really just not happy with. Um, another thing that's been going on with me is that I've been watching the Paralympics and it's honestly like one of the most like inspiring things to watch lately and it's been just so amazing like seeing the athletes that are like skiing with only one arm or skiing with no arm or seeing modified events like sled hockey and I just really like how in the Paralympics you get to just learn so much about some of these athletes' stories and their backgrounds and how they kind of got to where they are today so if you have not seen the Paralympics it recently just started I highly recommend watching it and it's just something that really has just been putting you know me and my family in a good mood cuz we just really missed the olympics so we are really excited to see the paralympics and personally this is my first time watching the paralympics so i'm really excited and i like what i've been seeing so far i have been getting like really into it another thing that i've been watching is love is blind like pretty much the rest of the world has been seeing and can we just talk about that reunion that just went up like literally last friday for season 2 like I have three words for you guys. Love is blurry. If you know, then you know. I will say that I liked the folks from season one a little bit better, but then I did have some people from season two that were like my faves. So I really loved Natalie. I just loved her sense of style and like the way that she carries herself. Really just liked her. Um, I also liked Diana. I also like South and Jarrett. I wasn't really a fan of like anyone else especially like Shayna and specifically at the reunion like I felt like a lot of people were just coming after Shake and really like towards the end of the reunion I really was just like Shake you really just need to like just zip it and just listen and just be there because you're really just digging yourself into a hole and it was really embarrassing to watch but I will say that You know, I feel like there are some things that were like really like people were like digging into Shake when they could have did the same thing to like Shayna to Shane at the same time. So I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I felt like season two went by like so fast. But I mean, at first I wasn't really like getting into season two. It took me a few episodes to actually like get into it. Um, But nonetheless, I did like it. I'm happy that I was able to see it. But also they kind of previewed at the reunion that there's going to be a new show by the same people who do love is blind called The Ultimatum. And guys, I actually want to see that show because it actually looks really good. And it reminded me of this other show that I like watching called Temptation Island. But it's kind of different. But those are the shows that I've been watching. Um, another thing that's been going on with me is that I've actually been dealing with some issues with my laptop. So I am currently in the process of trying to get it checked out and get whatever needs to be fixed fixed. So there may or may not be an episode next week. Hopefully that is not the case, um, but I just want to put that out there. So if you're like, hey, like, why isn't there another episode like next week? That is most likely the reason why. I am really hoping and praying that I will be able to get it back in enough time but that is pretty much what's been going on with me Um, and I will say in today's episode I am trying something different and I'm not going to be doing my typical segments that follow after like foodie likes and allergy news because we're just testing some new things here on the podcast so with that being said I'm just going to go ahead and introduce today's guest. So doctor Ender Enderpol-Wenhawa is the Medical Director of Pediatric Pulmonary Clinical Immunology and Allergy at the Miller Children's Hospital, one of the top 50 programs nationwide, and he is also the CEO of the nonprofit Southern California Food Allergy Institute whose tolerant Induction Program, also known as TIP, is providing true food freedom to those with severe allergies. He is a leading clinical academic scientist with five board certifications in transplant, immunology, allergy, pulmonology, pediatrics, and internal medicine. Early in his career, Dr. Renhawa began to question conventional protocols for the treatment of life-threatening food allergies. Distressed by watching parents suffer the loss of their children to fatal allergic reactions, he went on a mission to find innovative solutions and change the status quo. His early experience in lung transplant immunology coupled with his collaboration with National Allergy and Immunology Specialists led him to develop the solutions that are now offered through Southern California Food Allergy Institute. So as a disclaimer, by listening to this podcast, you agreed to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Make sure that you consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. So with that being said, let's get right into my conversation with Dr. Inderpol Renhawa. <laughs> So thank you so much, Dr. Renhawa, for coming on the podcast today to talk about all things allergies. So excited.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I think, uh, as always, if I can give get my voice out there on the topic, I will take advantage. So thanks. Appreciate it.
0: So before we get started, in each episode, I talk about my foodie likes. So basically, that's when I talk about my favorite items that are related to food. So it could be a snack. It could be a book about food your favorite meal lately, you know, whatever kind of floats your boat. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite food you likes right now?
1: Oh man, I tell you, I have a, I have the unfortunate reality of uh, having a sweet tooth, um, <laughs> big, big on desserts. Um, I, I'm a big fan of anything um, with uh, hazelnuts. Um, you know, if it's a, a cake or a tartufo or anything of that nature, uh i enjoy it so yeah if i'm ever anywhere and i find something with you know a link up to that uh i'm on it so but yeah that's probably my one huge weakness and yet um can't get away from it
0: (laughs) i know for me usually i am i'm not that big of a desserts person but if i do have a dessert it's usually like dark chocolate that's good too yeah really love dark chocolate especially (laughs) if it's like 70 80 percent like i just like when it's like really bitter yeah which is usually hard to find because a lot of people are like, no, like, how can you eat that? It tastes so weird, but our taste or our taste
1: <laughs> to, to, to each their own. Yes.
0: <laughs> um. Another question that I have for you is if you could describe allergies in one word, what would it be and why?
1: Oh, um, when I hear the word allergy, um, the only word that comes to my mind is uh, isolation. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard thing because not only are you isolated uh, with the diagnosis, you know, you, you, you have a diagnosis, but you're isolated as a, as a person, you're isolated from friends, you're isolated from family, you're isolated from food. You know, I mean, it's just across the board and uh, I've certainly learned that in my career so far, but that's the one word that always pops to my mind.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that, because especially when I first found out about my anaphylactic allergy to macadamia nuts, I definitely felt a little bit, you know, on my own island of my own and not really knowing kind of like where I should start or anything like that. And then kind of having that anxiety that kind of comes with it as well. So I definitely can see why that could be the first word that comes to probably a lot of people's minds. But I'm going to ask you the question of the, Oh, my allergies podcast, which is what is your, Oh, my allergy story. Like, how did you get into, you know, the world of like allergies and immunology?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I, I tell people this because it's, it's just the truth. Um, I, I, I had, I had no particular, uh, allergy growing up myself. I mean, I, I literally nothing, um, My siblings didn't have anything. Uh, My dad, you know, uh, was a veterinarian, animal doctor, and he had some uh, reactivity to animals, Mm -hmm. you know, that was significant. But outside of that, I saw nothing. And I went to medicine um, as a transplant uh, immunologist, did a lot of training, a lot of different board certifications, spent a lot of time to this day in the ICU settings Um, And that's where I was introduced to the world of, of, of allergy. I I never understood it. Um, And, you know, I, to be frank, like probably was like most everybody else and didn't give it any respect uh, until you were actually faced with these cases in the, in the ICU setting. And uh, yeah, you see a few of those cases and it it opens your eyes up pretty dramatically. And, you know, the problem is when, when you are dealing with very sick patients um, in an intensive care unit, um, you can deal with some things like, you know, if somebody has a chronic condition and it's worsening, okay, you know how to talk to those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, allergy came in like like a motor vehicle accident. I mean, you know, these people come in not expecting anything to happen. Um, and all of a sudden, they're in a really bad spot. Um, and having conversations around that was eye-opening. And it uh, really, I'd say, kind of uh, helped me organize my thoughts around what I should do about it.
0: And that's really interesting because typically, you know, when I've had guests on the podcast before, i just talked with other people, usually, you know, they have had an allergy themselves. So I think it's interesting that even though you didn't have an allergy yourself, you know, growing up and into adulthood, um, you still kind of found your way to allergies and were able to, you know, throughout your medicine journey, be able to learn how to sympathize and be able to be like, okay, well, this is a serious issue, you know, as you've been able to progress throughout your career, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, um, uh, you know, to, to be frank, I didn't respect it. Uh, at the start of my career, and I've gained an incredible amount of respect for it now, uh, many, many years later. But I think you know I always hope that uh, these conversations go beyond the ju- just the food allergy community because I really feel the general public still to this day um, does not give it the credit it deserves.
0: Yes, I definitely agree with that. And kind of leading into that, like what would you say is a misconception that you have found that people have about allergies and food allergies?
1: Oh, I think um, across the board, uh, the number one misconception is um, allergies are are not that severe. You know that people exaggerate them, and you know the truth is I'm sure some people do. I mean, there's people out there who label themselves as something just to get a you know a menu item you know cooked their way or made their way, which I think is really a horrible thing to do, but yeah. people do it. Um, you know, I do think even in healthcare, we are teaching, you know, physicians and especially young physicians that, you know, if somebody had an allergic reaction when they were younger, say it was to a drug, like an antibiotic, well, there's a good chance they don't have that anymore. So just give it to them anyway, right? Like, there's almost like this uh, approach where, where they feel that, you know, allergy is kind of this uh, not so common phenomenon. But then on the flip side, we know that it's a huge problem. We know exactly, well, not exactly, we know a range of how many people have this problem and we know the numbers going up. So they have a hard time reconciling all this, but I'd say that's, uh, it's kind of like with COVID right now, there's always, there's a lot of confusion, you know, like the words out there, the terms out there, enough people have it yet they don't quite know how to wrap their mind around it. And so a good chunk of the population just blows it off a very small percentage of people take it seriously and and accurately. And then there's this large group of people who are confused.
0: Yeah, that's something that I've definitely run into, especially if going out to like a restaurant or something like that, it's absolute worst. Whether it's Being told, oh, well, you can pick it off because one of my other allergies is to like to milk and dairy. Um, And they're like, oh, well, you can like pick the cheese off off of the salad. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Like that's that's not going to get rid of, you know, the root of the issue and the problem. And so I do think that that is a big misconception is that people don't understand the severity of it. But kind of like with all things, people don't understand it until they're living with it themselves you know?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the truth is the, um, you know, the patients who have food allergies, food anaphylaxis, they are still going to go out in the world. They are still going to go to restaurants. So then, you know, these other organizations are uh, not sure exactly how to handle that. Right. So they, they, you know, legally they're in a position where they have to pay attention. They're going to have to be extra careful or they're going to have to refuse service. And then that creates more problems and dilemmas. And it, gives, it goes back down to that whole term of isolation.
0: Yeah. Now, my next question is, what made you um, want to become you know, a doctor and have it where one of your focus areas be in allergy and immunology? Because my understanding is that that's not the only focus that you have, but it's just one of them.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, my, you know, my path to medicine is probably a bit different than most folks. I mean, I've, I've sat on, you know, medical school admissions committees now on and off for years. And, um, you know, I read applications as to why people go into medicine. They always have very, you know, kind of typical stories that they want to go into a space that helps people and, and so on. Um, You know, a lot of my influence comes from uh, my father. He came here uh, in the in the '60s, uh, basically, you know, as a as a research scientist, and so we grew up, uh, meaning my siblings and I grew up uh, looking at how people or how a research person thinks, and you know, what are they trying to solve, what kind of problems they trying to address. And he actually worked in the human space, uh, in the world of microbiology and different bacteria and, and so forth. And he really had a had a joy for that. Um, and then all of a sudden he was stuck. He was also trained as a veterinarian, and animal doctor. And in the 70s, there was no more money for research uh, for all kinds of reasons. But he then had to go into the care of animals. So I kind of grew up seeing um, science in real time, taking care of animals. And, you know, he, he would never give up on cases. There was this kind of this drive to solve problems that were placed in front of you. And I think that's the model that I, I learned and saw and, and went into as I went into human medicine. Um, I really questioned a lot of things. I wanted to find solutions. I did not like how we always talked about things being so progressive and we're doing such a great job. And then I go in the hospital and I would see these very sick people who basically don't have a lot of options. Uh, To me, that dichotomy wasn't clear. It didn't make any sense. So um, uh, that's how I grew up. And I think uh, to this day, I keep pushing myself to try to improve the system, you know, not just work on one disease, work on many, not just work on how research is done, but to improve the process of research development and bring in as many new technologies into the space as possible so we can help people, not 20 years from now, but help them today.
0: Wow, that's that's a really good answer. <laughs> like like you said, like a lot of people typically tend to, when they think of medicine, they're like, oh, like I want to help people. And yes, that's like, one of the foundations of being able to get into medicine but just hearing people's different answers and stories as to you know what kept them wanting to continue, whether that's, like you said, being able to improve some of the, you know, different research methodologies or being able to improve different treatments that are available in medicine, um, I think is really just inspiring. Um, But like one thing that I know a lot of people tend to discuss um, when it comes to food allergies in specific is the timing of when a person develops a food allergy, you know, like some people tend to think that they develop when they're a child or, you know, even in adulthood, you know, are there some allergens that tend to have more of a track record of developing when someone is a child rather than when they're an adult?
1: That's a great question. Uh, You know, I I, I always tell uh, any of my trainees, uh, you know, medical providers, physicians, et cetera, Uh, The one word I don't like to hear is the word outgrow. Um, You know, there's this term thrown out there and, you know, allergists use that word too, that, oh yeah, you can outgrow that, that, that allergy. Um, You know, let's be more specific, you know, and, and if you can outgrow something, uh, there's potential you can grow back into it. And, you know, the best example of that is the pure numbers. In this country, we have six to eight million young folks, meaning under the age of 18, uh, mainly young children who have food anaphylaxis. They're anaphylactic to multiple foods. That's six to eight million. Yet we have over 25 million adults with the problem. And so the math doesn't add up. And if you actually survey and look at the studies on the people on the adult side, two thirds of them developed anaphylaxis after the age of 18. So they grew into something. And so therein lies this uh, problem, which is the interface, the environment between what we eat and our immune system is very complex. It is not an on and off switch. There's no guarantee that what you eat as a young child is the same thing you eat when you're 10 or 20 or 50 or 70. And what is changing in that environment is key to what drives the immunology of food tolerance or food anaphylaxis. And those are the more appropriate terms to use. And, and that's what we certainly try to encourage.
0: Yeah, because when I've always, you know, encountered someone in allergies, whether that's an allergist or um, an ENT, things like that, they typically tend to use that word of outgrow or, you know, yeah, like if you might be dealing with it now or you might not have to deal with it later or tend to focus more so when kids develop food allergies rather than, you know, those 25 million that you just discussed of how people can develop allergies when they're older. And I think that's kind of like another misconception is, you know, oh, like kids are the ones that have allergies when it's like adults can get them too or anyone in between those age groups as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And and you know what I try to do is explain those uh, situations to to our patients as we see them, because you know once you start studying this condition across time, you can see how the immune system changes, and we know that, and we certainly have studied that for the last hundred or so years. uh, What does the immune system look like when you're six months old versus five, et cetera? And so if you look at something simple, like let's call it um, milk, right? So, you know, cow's milk is there. It, It has, you know, obviously a lot of exposure to very young children. Well, what is tolerance? Tolerance is basically a testing mechanism of your immune system. It's no different than muscle memory. You have to walk, you have to trigger your muscles to move, you have to condition the immune, condition the muscles to remember what what should be occurring in those reflex arcs. In the immune system and food, you have to expose the system to this cow's milk on a regular basis. Well, let's say, for example, your system can easily ingest cow's milk for the first three years of life. And then all of a sudden, you start getting abdominal symptoms that may or may not be related to the milk, but your immune system was never fully tolerant. And a patient then basically stops drinking cow's milk and instead starts to drink um, soy milk or something else. So for the next two years, there's no exposure to cow milk, but what is the person eating? They're eating another form of a a similar protein, say beef or some other form of cows-based meat. So these kind of chronic approaches of exposure result in a six or seven-year-old now getting exposed to ice cream and developing hives, right? So all of a sudden there was not that rhythm of tolerance that's needed. It's a rhythm of exposure that's needed to drive the system. And now the hives turn into a diagnosis. Now they got labeled as a seven-year-old with anaphylaxis. Well, that problem didn't start then. It started much before that, but unfortunately it was not so obvious and there was not the the inclination to go get the data and the testing to figure that out.
0: Oh, wow. That's so interesting because you tend to not really I mean, like as a person who's not, you know, a doctor or anything like that, you don't really think of it from that type of a lens. But when you say it like that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, It makes a lot of sense as to, you know, how everything can be connected and interconnected with each other, even though, you know, it all started from cow's milk. But since you're still eating byproducts of a cow later in life, potentially in that scenario, it's like still all connected, you know, that's really interesting. Now I know like for some allergens, like. Some people may have like problems with eating them like in their like rawest and truest forms such as like they can't eat like a fruit that's raw or they can't like drink a glass of milk without experiencing some type of symptoms but they can have like a pastry or like a cake where that milk gets baked in or they can have a fruit that's cooked would a case like this still be categorized as like an allergy or would that be more so around like oral allergy syndrome or
1: yeah no I mean uh, that's a great point you know if if you if you take that example back even further um look at who technically is at risk of developing any kind of allergy and remember allergies are you know autonomous almost in a way an umbrella and so you know what's under the umbrella is what counts so if you're allergic to food there's a good chance you're going to be somewhat allergic to pollen there's a good chance you're going to be somewhat allergic to other things in your environment and you might have some skin conditions, et cetera, that are all tied together. But Mm -hmm. if you look at kind of global data, about half the world is non-allergic. You know, the number keeps switching a little bit, but just assume one out of two people never develop allergies of any kind in their life. So what is it about them that makes them that way? That's the big question. You know, Is it genetics? Is it other things? But that crosses over across the uh, globe. I mean, it doesn't matter ethnicity, race, anything, gender, it's all about half the people who are in the allergic predisposition. So let's call it 4 billion people. How come we don't have 4 billion people who have food allergies? Well, because they are in that rhythm of tolerance. They're exposing their system to enough proteins on a an regular and irregular basis to drive that system into that balance point. So going to your point, oh, your question about say, you know, uh, Uh, baked milk or, uh, you know, some of these fruits versus raw or not. What that tells you is that the immune system, the native immune system of that allergic population, that one half of the global population in that person is still not fully adapted. When it sees that baked milk, it sees something, it turns on an immune response, but it's a different immune response than what is there when you drink uh, uncooked milk like or like raw milk. Mm. And so that immune response is really a chemical response. You're talking about going down I mean I'm not going to bore you with the uh, you know van der Waals forces and things mm-hmm. of that nature but the thing is you have to go down to the level of binding and how the immune system binds to these proteins. And indeed when you apply heat to food pretty much any food It changes the way the protein is folded and it changes the way it binds to things. And so that's a good thing to some degree, but it certainly doesn't preclude that person from being at risk of anaphylaxis.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. The reason why I had asked that question, because I know like people in my personal life that like when they eat like a fruit or something like that, they get like a reaction to it, but then when it's cooked, they don't. Or like, for example, like I have like a cousin who has an allergy to like eggs, but then like they can eat it in baked products. So I was like, that's kind of confusing. And so I was just interested in hearing like what your take is on it. But that's fairly interesting. And and I'm like, hmm, like those are just things you just never really think about, you know, kind of like getting down to like the root
1: it's funny right i mean when i first uh, when i got into the allergy space specifically food allergy the first question i asked was well let me go understand you know what all the great research has been done over the last 100 years in the world of of immunology great mm-hmm. okay got that then you start studying the world of allergy and it got very gray it was not very clear there wasn't a whole lot done then i went and started studying food like i'm talking food proteins food biology food plant science and that world was even more like complicated. (laughs) And so, you know, we kind of have to respect that. I mean, food is not just what is in front of us that we actually, you know, chew and swallow. There's a lot more to it. It's way more than fat carbohydrate and protein. It's got a lot more there. And I think, uh, you know, accepting that complexity, accepting the complexity of all those processes involved in the plant side, as well as the immune side, um, it, it's been extremely useful for at least me in developing the, the program and the work that I do.
0: Now, speaking of kind of like that complexity and, you know, that whole of trying to figure out, you know, like food and, you know, and allergies and things like that, like a question that we get a lot, and I'd like to hear your opinions on this, is like, what would be like your advice when it comes to like introducing foods that are known as being food allergens, like to a child?
1: Oh, you know, without a doubt, I mean, you have to take it uh, seriously. Number one, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, one out of two people is not going to be allergic. So you got a 50% chance of getting it right off the bat. Uh, But when it's a small child, no one's going to gamble. I mean, you know, that's your ultimate responsibility, um, so I think it's important that you look at, you know, the level of risk factors. And we do know that people who are at, at, at greater risk, they're going to have other allergic signs early. So maybe it's eczema, maybe it's uh, asthma, wheezing, et cetera. If they have those risk factors, go get some data, go get some testing done and then make a decision. But I think this idea of just blindly uh, exposing people, especially who have risk factors, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's, you know, it's kind of funny in the last 30 years, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has flip-flopped on this question multiple times. At one point they said, okay, yes, give, you know, expose children to, you know, fish and nuts and all these things early. It'll be fine. Then they had a bunch of negative consequences. And then they completely flipped the other direction. There was no peanuts until you're two, no fish until you're five years old, things of this nature. And now they flipped one more time and now they're trying to figure it out. So basically they don't, you know, they don't know. And what that tells you is there's something that needs to be done that needs to identify on a, on a personal level, a single patient at a time. Uh, what What is it? What is their sort of risk factors and, and can we make a good decision based on that?
0: Now another question that we get a lot in reference to children again is having that discussion about using and carrying auto injectors with them for their anaphylactic allergy or allergies. So what would your advice be for parents who are like struggling with having that discussion with their child but don't really want to like scare them but still want them to like understand the seriousness behind their allergy or allergies.
1: Uh, I mean um again great question. I think the, you know, the, the, the basic uh, a, a problem, or the, the kind of uh, analysis here, is that you're asking somebody to carry this large um, injectable device that, in the heat of the moment, you have to be calm, you know, collected, and you have to deploy it in your own leg, and you have to do it right. And it involves a needle. And it's not just a needle, it's a needle that comes out pretty fast. So, you know, there's nothing like just being straight with people, right? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, when when your child is ready to have that conversation, um, it should be an honest conversation, right? Because that's what it is. Now, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, there's many medical conditions in pediatrics and children that require needles. So, you know, there's plenty of parallels out there. Um, you know, I've, I've gone and, and helped out at uh, diabetes camps and such and uh, helped kids use uh, insulin injections and such, and they have to inject themselves. So it is very possible to have those conversations with uh, young folks. Some will be more comfortable early, some will be more comfortable later, but there has to be a comfort around the topic. And for those who are not ready to carry or they may carry, but they're not sure, it's important that their social circle is aware how to use an EpiPen right? Because it's again easier to use on somebody else than yourself. So I think it's just that kind of dynamic that needs to be an honest discussion that allows everyone some confidence. Uh, it comes back down to people who say like, oh, I can't, you know, s- stand on the side of blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fine. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be the right person to, you know, go join the military or even become a doctor. You have to just decide how your system handles those things that are in the heat of the moment. So, again, just honest discussions around that. We do that all day long. Um, And, you know, I think kind of keeping it in the open um, allows uh, folks to grow and and, kind of make that decision when they're ready. And certainly at the very least, it provides them with the right social circle of safety so that when something needs to be happening that's correct, we get that done.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with making sure that if you have any nerves or if your child has any nerves about the whole idea of using, you know, an EpiPen or AVQ, um, to definitely make sure that their circle around them knows how to be able to use it. Because more recently, like I was showing uh, someone in my family on how to be able to use it because of the trainer that comes with the OBQ. um, right. And that's really helpful just in case you are in a situation where you can't do it yourself because of symptoms that you're dealing with. So not only to be able to provide that comfort of if you're freaking out, then you can have somebody in your circle that could be near you to help you, but also if you can't even do it yourself.
1: That's right. No, I I think that's well said. Um, You know, I know adult patients, many, many who are uncomfortable with that concept, you know, like I'm not sure I can inject myself. So that's fine. You know, it, it still means you should carry it with you. It still means you should let people know because even in in a, a emergency, emergency situation, if people are around you, generally speaking, one out of you know some group of people is going to know how to use it. So again, it's just more about kind of having that honest conversation, uh, being ready. But I also tell uh, folks it, it is not as scary as it sounds technically. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, the mindset has to shift a little bit where you say, look, this is something that, um, is not going to hurt more than the split second that I'm thinking about it. And yet at the same time, it can save my life. Um, and so often is the case that, you know, the, the hesitation is the problem, right? It's hesitancy. They know they got to use it. They're not totally sure better off just attempt to use it and get it done. And you'll be surprised how easy it actually works. Uh, One other trick that a lot of allergist doctors use is they take an expired epi and inject it into something just so you kind of get a a sense of what that uh, spring-like action feels like. Mm -hmm. And once you kind of get that a few times, it's really not so bad.
0: Yeah. I'm still trying to get over those (laughs) nerves myself personally, uh, just because of the thought of a needle going into my leg and me having to do it. It's just It's just frightening at times.
1: (laughs) I I, I, I will tell you, you know, when I first got into this space, I um, purposely looked in that area because, you know, many of the cases I saw, uh, the epi was given too late. And so Mm. I wondered why. And so I looked into that and I really feel there's an opportunity to create a better product. You know, I mean, whether it's anaphylaxis for food or some other thing, I mean, there's one, you know, good percent of the population has a Beasting sting or venom allergy and they have to carry around EpiPens too. So, you know, there has to be a better way, um, you know, in, in 2022 that can kind of get people comfortable using this. And, and so that's always been in the, in the back of my mind that we should develop that.
0: Yeah. Now, speaking of, you know, what you do um, and your organization, can you walk us through, you know, the journey of like the challenges you've had with like what you've discovered from being a medical school, your residency and practice in medicine and how this all led to you forming the Southern California Food Allergy Institute?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, I'll try to give the shortest version of that story <laughs> uh, possible. I mean, again, I was always interested in uh, the space of immunology, obviously as a transplant person, uh, I had the opportunity to work uh, amongst different age groups. That's also very unusual. I have multiple board certifications. So I take care of you know just a few day old baby and I also have patients who are 100 years old. So wow. seeing conditions across time is very interesting. And one of the things I noticed uh, uh, during uh, one of my training years was that I had a group of patients who were in their 80s and 90s, you know, very old older patients who had anaphylaxis to things when they were in their 30s and 40s and suddenly were able to eat some of those proteins. And the cool thing is I had their data from when they were very when they were younger as well. So I could start to see some of the linkage points, something that changed over time with their immune system. So I had that kind of tucked away in my mind. And then in the ICU setting, when I started seeing these bad cases, I started understanding that we had to try to understand what that immune system did over time, meaning, Early exposure to foods and proteins in the immune system and the environment—what did that do? How how many layers of, of data am I looking at? So that's how I saw things. And as a transplant uh, physician, that's something we do all the time. We don't just take an organ and put it in somebody. We have to match. We have to say, hey, you know, how many HLA antigens do you have here? How many HLA are there? What's the best match? How do we prepare that system? So when I first started looking at food allergy, my immediate goal was not to just get some amount of small amount of some protein in a system. My goal was to take that whole amount of food and allow that system to fully accept it, no different than an organ. And in order to do that, we had to look at layers and layers and layers of data. That means we had to collect that data, we had to isolate it, we just organize it in a way that made sense. And you know, long story short, we're now sitting on hundreds of trillions of data points organized across various databases and we run a huge amount of tests on our patients to understand that immune system interface what is it that that one individual immune system does how does it look at food proteins how does it look at biosimilar proteins and we also look at the planted animal kingdom and all of those proteins and organize them in an organized way towards amino acid sequences DNA sequences, etc and so we're trying to take advantage of the this incredible amount of complexity and we are organizing it into data sets. Those types of data sets allow us to draw blood on somebody and say, okay, we can understand where you fit. Once we understand how that works, we can then go ahead and take that immune system and put it through a process of training to get into that rhythm and over a relatively short period of time, turn the immune system off towards those key anaphylactic proteins and in the end, the patient can enjoy food like a non-allergic person. They can eat any amount of that food that they want without restriction. So it's, it's, it's incredibly complex, without a doubt. Um, and when you talk about that level of complexity, um, it's way beyond the human capacity. And that's why we use a lot of software AI and applied math to get that done.
0: Oh, wow. Could you like, explain the process of the tolerance induction program and like, what it all entails?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, we, we take a, a patient with uh, any, any kind of medical history of food anaphylaxis. And the first thing we do is we start collecting information. Again, everything has to be data. It has to be a number. So it first starts off with an intake form. Everything we have is digital. So it's done online. Uh, Then it turns into basically an interview that's done by a trained physician in our system. They're then organizing those answers into numbers, basically yes, no, et cetera. Uh, And then when patients come in, we draw about 400 tests on them. Many of them are blood-based. And that's a huge amount of tests to run on anybody. But when you're doing this type of data science, you must make sure that you have the same amount of data on everybody. And so that's difficult. It certainly costs uh, prohibitive, but we—that that is the best way to, to do this type of medicine. And so once we gather all that information, we basically feed it into our machine learning systems and it compares and assesses the patient to the Thirteen thousand plus patients who are in our who have been in our system or who are still actively in our system, and it matches them to a certain subtype. Once we identify the subtype, it looks at that actual data that was collected and it assesses their risk. Once we assess their risk, uh, we actually term that thing a snapshot. You get a list of all your food uh, proteins and where it lies in relationship to that endotype level of risk. Once we have that, then the machine learning system prepares a pre-treatment. Uh, conditioning tolerance induction and remission pathway of exposure, and what that basically means: these are cycles of food protein exposure. Uh, these cycles of food proteins are things that we actually manufacture here. We have a manufacturing facility, and we put that into gummies into gelatin. Um, and so, like, we have a gummy for pretty much you know any seed you can imagine, you know, flax seed to uh, you know, uh, walnuts, uh, all and so forth, but it's measured down to very specific micrograms, milligrams, et cetera, that is done because that is what the applied math predicts. And so we basically deploy these cycles of treatment. And at the end of those cycles, patients come in, they're typically coming in every six, eight, or 10 weeks, and they're consuming a large amount of the whole protein itself. So it could be walnuts, it could be peanuts. It could be any, uh, common food that's ingested. And by the time they reach the end of the program, we make sure that they can eat all foods, uh, period. So, you know, if it was fish, shellfish, uh, whatever it may be, we'll cover all of them. So, by the time they actually hit remission, they're in a state where they can eat any food, uh, you know, without restriction. What we ask for once they hit remission is that they uh, maintain, again, based on the uh, machine learning and AI, a weekly exposure rate of certain food proteins. Um, so in other words, like, let's say you were anaphylactic to you know five or six things at the end of the program, you're eating uh, a a amount of those five or six proteins on a weekly basis. Uh, the rest of the time you get whatever you want. Patients then come back every year. Every year we repeat uh, the same type of testing, the same type of machine learning model, and they go deeper and deeper into remission. And we can reduce that frequency to every two weeks, three weeks, and four weeks. So many of our patients are on three and four week cycles, and the rest of the time they eat like a totally non-allergic person.
0: Oh, wow. So what would you say is like the estimated like time commitment for families who may be interested in this program?
1: Well, uh, you know, it, it does depend on the total number of allergens you're dealing with. And mm-hmm. honestly, it also depends on on the complexity of a specific allergen. So for example, the most difficult allergen to treat is wheat. Uh, wheat has uh, 25 primary protein sequences. We have to match those. It's a very reactive protein. So for example, if somebody comes in with peanut, cashew, pistachio, and wheat, They will have a markedly longer cycle than somebody who's just peanut, cashew, and pistachio. Uh, But -hmm. for our typical patients, they're in the program for about uh, two years and six months or two years and eight months, something of that nature. But some are longer and some are actually much shorter as well.
0: Okay. Now, is it like how much of it is conducted in the office and how much does the patient need to do at home in terms of like a treatment schedule?
1: Yeah, uh, so we try to make this as user-friendly as possible. Again, we've known this for, you know, well over a decade now. And so uh, the majority of this is actually conducted at home. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're coming in every six, eight or 10 weeks. Uh, During that time, we do a full, you know, kind of challenge cycle uh, under full security, full safety. And then we introduce the new food proteins there. And then you continue that exposure rate at home. Again, highly controlled. We're providing you with the most critical dose amounts uh, in these gelatin and gummy formats property labeled, properly organized, almost like a medication. Uh, We actually built an app, Uh, you know, not too many medical places do anything with apps, but we build our own app from scratch. That app actually reminds our patients what to do at home, what they do in the morning, what to do in the afternoon, uh, click to close, helps me- uh, measure compliance, feeds that back to the patient and to our system, uh, also allows patients to report symptoms and and things of that nature. So, you know, we do try to make this as user-friendly as possible, but the vast majority of the exposure is done at home, but it's done very safely at home.
0: Oh, wow. Now, what allergens does... The tolerance induction program, like tree and like, is there particularly like is tip particularly beneficial for like certain allergies more than others?
1: Uh, you know, it's 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 really based on evolutionary protein biology, and so you know, essentially every protein is treatable as long as we have the data on that protein. So whether it's milk, eggs, wheat, soy, you know, tree nuts, peanuts, uh, seeds. Uh, we treat it all um, fish, shellfish. So we have, uh, you know, obviously we have more data across some uh, proteins than others. So like, you know, we have treated hundreds of patients who are allergic to oysters and clams, but you know, that's not as much as, you know, 10,000 patients who are allergic to tree nuts, things like that. So, um, you know, I, 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 right now we feel very comfortable using our current approach as long as we have the data science. And so as long as we can continue continue to build on that, we will continue to treat the patients effectively.
0: So like, how do you all determine the order of the allergens that are treated?
1: Um, So it's really not uh, up to the patient, it's up to uh, the data science. It's it's what the patient's blood and testing results tell us. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we'll have some patients who say, well, you know, I my child eats, uh, uh, I don't know, pecans You know, uh, every uh, eight months, and I don't think it's an issue, and then when we run our tests, it puts them at some level of risk. Uh, we will tell those families, you know, look, this is one of those situations, as we described earlier, what is the rhythm of exposure, and is your child truly in a state of tolerance? Um, some of the patients elect to undergo a full-blown food challenge to just prove that, you know, either our system is right or our system is wrong. But I'll tell you, um, the vast majority of the time we are right. So, uh, you know, we try to be cautious and careful as we move forward. But uh, our data science is is quite good. Um, you know, we have an extremely high success rate for that for that reason. And we also don't want to put the patients in a level of risk. I mean, we want this to be a good uh, experience. They should feel safe. Uh, they should have success. And in the end. You know, we do that uh, with uh, the proper level of analysis so that we're not wasting time either. We want to get them done as fast as possible.
0: Now, speaking of kind of like the success rate, like how do you all like measure like successful outcomes for the program?
1: Uh, Very simple. If a patient comes in with, you know, one, you know, five or, you know, 10 food allergens at the end of that program. Uh, at a molecular level, meaning at the blood and testing level, they have to be in a state of remission. And at the clinical level, meaning eating huge amounts of protein, they have to also prove that they're in remission at a clinical level. And so, for example, at peanuts, um, you know, patients are eating about 30 grams of protein, about 75 peanuts in just a few minutes. And these are people who had you know huge numbers on blood tests, and before they could even you know they could barely handle peanut dust. Uh, just think about how much protein we're exposing them to in a very short period of time. So that is the fundamental goal. And our, our success rate is defined as that that type of percentage of success. They have to be able to hit both marks, clinical and molecular.
0: So I know when it comes to like food allergy treatments, like one that's popularly talked about is, you know, OIT. And um, I'd like to hear, like, what would you say is the difference between, you know, OIT and, you know, tolerance induction?
1: Well, you know, OIT has been around for a very long time. Uh, You know, really for the better part of 60 years, people have tried some version of OIT. OIT is essentially blindly exposing a patient to small amounts of food, um, hoping that they can get, you know, they can handle a certain amount of exposure and then they have to keep eating that amount of exposure for the rest of their life uh, never really being able to eat that food, right? So that's I mean, that's a pretty fair assessment of what OIT does. Uh, does it provide a low level of protection? I mean, there's some argument that it provides a level of protection, but the other problem is it does cause a lot of reactions. And in, and even the, the failure rate is quite high as well across different foods and across the world uh, where different uh, folks have tried to deploy it. So I've actually never... Um, Uh, built uh, this program around OIT's concepts. I mean, it it, it didn't make sense to me. I mean, to me, uh, we had to measure things first. We had to really understand what we were trying to accomplish and set a very clear goal of remission. And so, you know, what we are trying to do is dramatically different. We are treating the patients, uh, you know, across all biosimilar proteins. We're studying their immune system highly effectively. It's all done with extreme amount of data science and applied math. And that gives us great safety rates and numbers and and end goal is the same. Like we have to get every patient to a point where they can eat like a non-allergic person.
0: So my next question would be, so you kind of answered it, but would you say that like tolerance induction kind of falls underneath its own umbrella rather than like being underneath like this whole like idea of like immunotherapy?
1: Yeah. uh, I I think that's a a really well said, Um, you know, I, immunotherapy like let's let's talk about like other forms of immunotherapy for a second um immunotherapy has been around for Really, thousands of years. I mean, they've known for a long time if you just expose yourself to a certain amount of, uh, you know, for example, venom, you know, from a snake or venom from a bee, that people could tolerate more and more of those stings. So that was not anything new. And for the last 150, 200 years, people have been injecting different types of pollen, you know, in their skin and got some benefit. But that, again, was done relatively blindly. You just got exposed and you know weren't sure what the endpoint outcome was. Um, even in the world of cancer immunotherapy, which tries to be much more focused, uh, they have real difficulty trying to understand what their endpoint looks like because they don't have the data. And I think what we've done really well here is we started collecting data a long time ago, over a decade and a half ago, across all kinds of systems of the human body and across all kinds of systems of animal and plant proteins. And as we get every single new patient into the system, we continue to deploy that approach and collect more information, all with patient consent. And we're able to kind of grow this in almost an exponential way. So you know that's a clear difference between what other typical immunotherapies are trying to accomplish. Our end goal is very different. We're actually trying to hit remission and we're doing it by conducting active research and developments uh, on a day-by-day basis.
0: So another question that I have is like one term that you say that once, you know, patients are considered their program is completed is like that remission. So when they are in that remission of phase of their program, like would they still have to, you know, use like auto injectors or is the idea of being able to not have to, you know, rely on that type of a uh, device?
1: Well, you know, I just want to reiterate that, you know, this program to date um, is a decade and a half or so, you know, in the making, uh, which means that in a decade and a half, uh, this approach, this set of ideas, which has turned into actual, you know, mathematical models, uh, forecasting, machine learning, AI systems, patients, being treated uh, to the largest number of patients in, in any sort of system in the world of food allergy in the world has happened relatively quickly. Uh, you know, We got a lot done in a very short period of time. We continue to grow. Um, why I say that is because my initial goal, what was my initial goal of doing all this work? Uh, my initial goal was very simple. I did not wanna see what I saw in ICU settings uh, you know, a long time ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was, it, it, it bothered me a lot. And I said, I just don't want to see any sort of serious negative events. We've accomplished that. This tolerance reduction program has accomplished that. Um, your question, which is also my question is, can we ever turn the switch off? Can we ever get to a point where we can remove this, uh, you know, requirement to carry epipens? Based on the data we have so far, um, I do believe the answer is yes, but we must prove it. And so we're actually launching a campaign, um, well, it already launched uh, about a month ago, uh, where we want to spend the next few years trying to understand what type of cellular immunity, cellular populations are changing in our patients over time and prove that they actually don't need an EpiPen anymore. And I believe we will get there. Um, it's it's, it's got to be a lot of work and a lot of focus, just like it was to build this program. But uh, just a simple number, um, our patients who are out one year post-remission, uh, you know, which means that you know they're out one year and kind of eating things and, and, and eating like a non-allergic person, we continue to track them and we continue to see them back. And the number of EpiPens deployed after the fact and even very minimal amount of compliance is zero. Um, So we know that we can put these patients in a very safe spot. But as a scientist, we cannot just assume anything, we must prove it across different models and platforms. And we will certainly put our effort to do that in the next couple of years here.
0: So how do people with food allergies, as well as parents who have children who have food allergies, know when they should look at like actual food allergy, like treatments as an option, kind of like a tip for them or their family, rather than just, you know, carrying, you know, auto injectors and medical kits and just kind of keep it moving?
1: Well, I mean, you know, for our patient population, we we have uh, set the precedent of taking any patient you know, we don't say no to anybody. Uh, we have the most complex cases. Uh, I mean, we have patients from all over the world who come here, and they have multiple. Uh, food anaphylaxis proteins they have other medical conditions uh, we have patients who have liver transplants and all kinds of things that are unrelated but they just happen to have it so you know we take this very seriously uh, you can't have this level of work and level of success if you don't have that type of that type of gravitas but uh, you know we also have to be in a situation where you know we know we can apply this to the general population of food allergy patients let's say about 10 12 years ago the average age of our patients was in the mid teenage years so 14 15 years old now why were those patients showing up here because they were in you know in high school or about to go to high school uh, they knew it was going to be tough and the parents wanted an option for them Right now, our average age is closer to four to five years of age. So we're getting a lot of very young patients coming in because these parents uh, are nervous. Uh, they are not getting clear guidance. And in many ways, they hand over their child's case to us. We are able to kind of hold them and walk their hand with their hand, hold them through the process of tolerance induction. And I think they find that immensely um, fulfilling and, and certainly less stressful. Uh, we provide 24-7 on-call support. We're constantly getting, you know, a clear set of goals. We retest on an annual basis. So I think that level of support is is very um, positive. Now, to answer your question, should is this for everybody? I, I firmly believe the program can treat any degree of uh, food allergies that are out there. I mean, maybe, maybe there'll be a case that comes up our way. But, you know, right now, based on what we've seen, it's not a problem. Uh, but if a child, say, is two years old and has uh, an egg allergy and, you know, egg anaphylaxis, and it seems like it is getting better over time, you know, maybe that's probably not a good candidate for our program per se, because maybe over time they can consume enough biosimilars where their egg allergy is now in a state of tolerance. But for those who have significant uh, food anaphylaxis, you know, multiple proteins, etc., um, you know, we are certainly there for them. And if they elect to uh, live a life where they're carrying around an auto-injector and they live with that, degree of risk, um, that's their prerogative to do so.
0: So, um, like, A few months back, I actually had a patient of your program um, on my podcast, and she briefly, you know, discussed her experience with tips and she's still in the program. And she mentioned that she, you know, goes back and forth between, you know, California and Arizona in order to take part in the program. So my question is, is this program available for people who may not, you know, live nearby California or is it currently just in California right now?
1: yeah, right now we're based um, in we have a huge uh, hub, basically in South l a County and city of Long Beach. Um, and we have you know hundreds of employees and huge amount of square footage across different functions of space. We are about to expand into San Diego County. We'll have our first site up there March first, and we will continue to grow from there in the next number of months. Uh, but right now, about forty five percent of our patients come from outside of California. So they are coming here from all over the U.S. We have a huge population of folks from the Northeast, New York, et cetera, Florida, Texas, uh, Chicago, et cetera. And then again, we have uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of international patients. Oh, and wow. this is done without any advertising. So uh, we are certainly able to use our data system uh, to forecast how to expose these patients safely, uh, no matter where they live uh, locally or abroad.
0: So how do you see you know, the Southern California Food Allergy Institute and TIPS, a new role in, you know, allergy treatments a growing and expanding and kind of like what's next for you all?
1: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, we have to do our job right every single time. Uh, you know, I mean, there's that level of safety, that level of uh, attention that has to be uh, present for every single patient. And that's what is great about uh, software systems and machine learning and AI is that, you know, humans can make mistakes, but these systems uh, simply cannot make mistakes if they're built correctly. And so, as long as we can continue to deploy this type of treatment, you know, safely and in the same model that we have, continuing to build on technology. Uh, we will continue to expand. And you know, we have every intention of getting across the US. I, I, you know, I really feel bad for folks who are traveling at a distance. You know, we have young folks, college students, people started their first jobs, and you know, they have to break away. Now, in, you know, when I talk to them, they are extremely thankful and they appreciate what's going on, but I, I realize the the need that is there. And you know, I, I do believe that you know we are uh, we are it when it comes to the form of therapy because Any other form of therapy that's out there, which is highly limited as is, um, is really this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. And and we know that after six decades of of that approach being tried, uh, that it doesn't seem to work. Uh, It certainly doesn't work for the vast majority of patients. What patients with food anaphylaxis want is safety, a high degree of efficacy, and ability to lead a normal life. And that's something that we have done now time and time again with an over 99% success rate. One last point I'd make is, uh, you know, as a as a hard academic as I am, uh, we also have to do things uh, under proper regulation and surveillance, and we've certainly done that all these years. And we are now about to uh, head into the FDA world, uh, where the FDA can actually look at our machine learning process, and get their uh, you know thumbs up, their stamp of approval as well, uh, which continues to give us the confidence to grow this across the country.
0: So I want to play a quick game with you. It's called setting the allergy record straight. So there are so many different, you know, contradictory stories about allergies. So I'm going to read off some assumptions and statements that are commonly mentioned in the allergy community and just wanted to get your viewpoint on them as if they are, you know, true or false. Sounds good. So the first statement is each allergic reaction to food becomes increasingly worse.
1: Uh, that's false. Um, you know, uh, food allergy reactions depend on many factors and, you know, that could be, that can change over time based on someone's immune system. It could also change on uh, uh, with time based on your, your size. I mean, just your physical size uh, actually changes that. So that is false. It is not predictable in that way. And that's why, again, studying the system and, um, and kind of absorbing all of that complexity is what we do well and what's the right thing to do.
0: So uh, the next statement is a mild allergic reaction is equivalent to a mild food allergy.
1: <laughs> Absolutely false. No, <laughs> that's, I mean, you know, honestly, that's very scary to me. Um, I, I, I won't tell too many stories, but, um, you know, we have many patients here, a good percentage, uh, very close to one fourth of our patients have attempted treatment elsewhere. And, you know, you're talking about some of the most you know, recognized university systems out there. And they will say, based on your last statement, oh, well, that sounds like a mild reaction. Let's just go and do a full challenge. And the results are, are, uh, you know, not, not good. So absolutely. You cannot base the clinical reaction on a determination of what your degree of food anaphylaxis is.
0: So the next statement is food allergies always begin in childhood.
1: We talked about that a lot. Right, right. <laughs> that's a that's a negative. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Two thirds of food anaphylaxis will develop after the age of eighteen.
0: And then the last statement is something that we also talked about too: is you can outgrow a food allergy.
1: I, I mean. I don't like that term, uh, you know, can you develop a level of tolerance to food allergy or food allergy, you know, that you had as, as a younger person? That's possible. Certainly, without a doubt, that's possible. And we do see that with certain foods. But unfortunately, uh, and we're seeing more and more of this, that uh, people who are developing food anaphylaxis in the last 10 to 20 years, they seem to have a more fixed response where they actually continue to maintain that food food allergy or food anaphylaxis into young adulthood and adulthood.
0: So my last question for you is where can people find more about the work that you do Dr. Rahwana and more about the Southern California Food Allergy Institute.
1: Well, I mean we got a great website, uh, socalfoodallergy.org. Um our uh data AI system is uh, tperk.tpirc.org uh, definitely encourage people to check it out. We're present across uh, most social media platforms as well. Uh and on YouTube uh, we have a great channel it explains a lot of this uh as well nicely digitally. Um, and I encourage people to, you know, stay on top of our uh, events, uh, We're, you know, as COVID kind of wraps up here, we will be having more events like we used to have. And uh, just coming in and talking to the scientists, the the doctors, and then of course, other patients is great. And it really develops a lot of, uh, uh, I'd say it's, it's eye opening, it develops some enlightenment for uh, the folks who are interested.
0: It was a pleasure having you on the podcast, Dr. Rahwa. I learned so much about, you know, more about allergies and immunology and specifically in relation to food allergies. And I definitely believe that a lot of people will get some benefit from this episode. So thank you for taking the time out of your day today.
1: Well, thank you, Valencia. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work. It's a great you're an advocate for for our space as well. And and I appreciate you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Doctor Ranhawa. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Renhawa, for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation that we had about all things food allergies, talking about different food allergy treatments, talking about why the one size all fits approach is really you know, not as effective as some may think it may be when it comes to allergies. But I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and really were able to get some value and some advice and some really great tips from this episode and from this conversation. If you all wanna be able to learn more about the things that Dr. Renhawa and his team at the Southern California Food Allergy Institute is doing, make sure you check out our show notes. We will have their website and their social media and where you can follow and stay up to date into what they are doing. But if you wanna learn more about the Southern California Food Allergy Institute and about the tip, program, also known as the tolerance induction program, you can visit www.socalfoodallergy.org to find out more if you are not subscribed to the oh my allergies podcast already make sure you hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice we're available on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify stitcher pretty much where all podcasts can be played at also make sure that you take the time to follow us on instagram our instagram is at oh my allergies follow me while you're at it my instagram is at oh my valencia make sure you take the time to write a review and leave us a rating hopefully that rating is five stars keep on sharing the podcast with people you know and don't know and I will talk to you guys in the next episode bye guys